Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Thank you. I'll position myself slightly off centre this time, seeing as 90% of the people are on the, my right. Um, so here we go, I can shout at you more easily here. Um, okay, good. So thank you, Noah, uh, thank you, Jacob, for reading for us. We are coming into the, this is the second, really, the second proper talk in this series in the book of Philippians. And uh, if you're aware from looking online or you've been here a few weeks ago, uh, you'll know that the, the, the topic is the pursuit of joy. Um, that's what we're calling the series in the, in the book of Philippians for the, for the reason that it is pretty clear when you read through that joy is something that comes in abundance to Paul who wrote this letter. So we saw last week that <clears throat> there are multiple routes uh, into joy, rather like multiple uh, mines that are dug to go and find the gold that are in the hills. You don't just dig one mine to get to the gold, you dig multiple mines to get to the treasure. Or the big boat uh, doesn't just put down one anchor so that it's secure in, in the middle of a storm, it puts down multiple anchors. And so as we go through the book of Philippians, we see that there are multiple ways, multiple routes or paths that we can take to joy, to experience greater and deeper joy. And so we saw last week the first route or the first path that Paul gives us uh, in, in, in the first 11 verses of the, the letter is this summed up as this. God always finishes what he starts. God always finishes what he starts. And so the more we understand that and when we start to see fruit uh, of what he's doing in our lives, that encourages us, that gives us joy, and we know that will only continue. So that was last week. You can listen to that online if, if you want. But the second route, the second uh, path, the second mine into joy we're going to look at today. And it can be summed up like this. When Jesus is your greatest treasure, you will have joy. When Jesus is your greatest treasure, you will have joy. And we're going to think about that in three different ways. When Jesus is your greatest treasure, you will have joy in past trials, number one. You'll have joy in present hardships, number two. Number three, you'll have joy in future uncertainty. That's what happens when Jesus is your greatest treasure. So we're going to think about this second route to joy under these three headings. And then fourthly, there's kind of like a four-point sermon. Um, we're going to look at how we get that. How do we attain the kind of joy that Paul talks about? All right? So in Christ, Jesus is your greatest treasure. Number one, you will get joy when you look at your past trials. Okay? Joy when you look at your past trials. The joy that is available... In Christianity, because of the Christian faith, means that you and I and anyone else who believes can look back at our past trials, no matter what they are, and be joyful. Let me show you what I mean. Look down at verse 12, and if you have those verses in front of you, it's going to be handy because we're going to be dotting around a little bit. This is exactly what Paul is saying. He says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers... That is the, the community of faith, brothers and sisters, but they refer to them as brothers. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Let's just take a step backwards a minute and, and remind ourselves, to become clear as we go through, uh, that Paul writes this letter from 
prison. He's under house arrest, probably in the city of Rome. As we see in verse 13, the imperial guard, this sort of uh, specialized unit of soldiers, are tasked with keeping him under arrest, keeping him in custody. That's their job. And so he's most likely chained up to one of them or something like that. And Paul is there. He's awaiting trial before Caesar to have his case heard. And ultimately to find out whether he's going to be released ultimately uh, or whether he's going to be killed. Uh, We can read the backstory, you know, what's going on in the background in the last eight chapters in the book of Acts. One third of the book of Acts is is given to what happens to Paul, the background of here. I'm not going to go into it in too much detail, but suffice to say this. In the book of Acts, we read that the apostle Paul went to Jerusalem, the capital city of, of Palestine, uh, he, was, he was sort of uh, mobbed by a bunch of, of, of Jewish people. He was beaten. They made false accusations about him. They said he was uh, a rebel, that he was against Caesar, against the Romans. He was a, a troublemaker. He was arrested then. Uh, and, and as the story goes on, he, was a, he appeared before the, the Jewish council. He appeared before not one, but two Roman governors. He was, he was languishing in jail. They, they forgot he was there. Uh, he came under the power of inept and weak leaders. Eventually, he was put on a ship to go to Caesar, uh, to go to Rome. And that ship on its way uh, from the ancient uh, Near East to, to, to Italy um, was shipwrecked. They, they ended up on the island of Malta. Uh, he even got bitten by a snake. He, uh, when he got to Rome, he was subject to further insults, further injustices. So, When Paul says, what has happened to me, we realize he's gone through a lot. A lot of trials, a lot of hardships, physical suffering, mental suffering, spiritual attacks. People who used to be his friends have turned their back on him. But we can see that he has some kind of joy in his past trials. When, when he looks back, he can say, what has happened to me, all that stuff that has happened to me, has really served to advance the gospel. He's saying that through all that stuff, whether it's the shipwrecks, the beatings, the snake bites, the, the insults, Christ, Jesus, has been honoured through all that stuff. He has been proclaimed, and he says in verse 18, the first half, and in that I rejoice. In that I have joy. That makes me joyful. And we can see uh, the effect of his past trials in verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest, that is, those outside the, the, you know, the, this unit of, of soldiers, that my imprisonment, the reason why I'm here, is for Christ. It's because of my faith in Christ. That's why I've been bound up like this. Christ is being made famous because of him being in prison. And he goes on in verse 14. Uh, Most of the brothers, that is the, the believers in Rome, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are, are much more bold. They are speaking the word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. They're speaking without fear. In these words, it's amazing because there's, there's no hint of, of self-pity. There's no bitterness or, or anger that comes out in Paul's words. Don't forget his, his, his hurt was real. The injustices that were committed against him were real. The hurt and the lies were real. And yet he is able somehow or other to to look back and see all that stuff and say what has happened to me has really advanced the gospel and in that I rejoice. Christ is honoured. Christ is proclaimed. 
and that I rejoice. I wonder uh, if you were in Paul's shoes or sandals, uh, how, would you, how would you respond to that situation? Or even more, 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 more personally, when you look back on your own life, more recently and even further back as the years go on, what, what comes to your mind? What, what trials, what dark times come to your mind? Maybe a period of, of loss. Maybe a period when you were harmed somehow or other. Maybe, like the Apostle, you were the subject of lies and hurts and injustices, real injustices, real hurts. Maybe, like him, you have experienced what it's like to be failed by those over you in responsibility. When you think about those kind of things, those trials, how does your response compare to to Paul's that we see here? Are you filled with joy? Do you you look back on those things, whatever they may be, and say they have advanced the gospel? They have made Jesus more glorious. Is that what you say? Or are you maybe tinged with bitterness? Maybe angry still, even after years and years and years? Maybe you're full of resentment You might be sitting here tonight and think to yourself, you have no idea, Dave, what I have been through. You have no idea what's happened to me. And perhaps you're right, perhaps I don't know. But we're looking here at someone who is acquainted with trials and hardships, physically, mentally, spiritually, the Apostle Paul. He gives us further insight to his, his mind in another letter he wrote, <coughs> probably an earlier time, to the Christians in Rome. He says this in this kind of a famous verse in Romans, 8 chapter, sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He says this, this is Paul again. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love God, all things, all things, Work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. That's the Apostle Paul. That's the one who is suffering. He's not saying that all things are good, just to be clear. But he is saying that everything that has happened to me back then has worked together and will work together for good. My imprisonment was not good, he would say. The beatings were not good. The hurt that I am feeling and felt is not good. The trials, the interrogations, the false accusations, the injustice, not good. But Paul is able to look at those things and still say, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Has really served to advance God's purposes in the world. How can Paul say that? How can he look back at all of that stuff and rejoice? And the answer is what we started to think about. Jesus Christ is his greatest treasure. For Paul, Jesus Christ is his highest joy. 
And when that happens, and when, if, if that is ever the case for you, and we'll look at this at the end, but when, when Jesus Christ is your greatest treasure, it changes the way you look back at your past trials. It changes how you look at the past, what happened. Paul, you see, isn't sitting in his cell or wherever he happens to be and looking at all these individual things that are happening happened to him and, and, and chewing them over and mulling them through. No, no, no. Paul has almost, if you like, got into an aeroplane at 30,000 feet and he's looking down at all of those things as, as a block. What has happened to me? All that stuff, he says, as he looks, looks down at it, has been used by God to honour Jesus Christ, to further the purposes of the kingdom. They have bought fruit somehow or other. That is how he is able to look back at the past with joy. And if Christ is our highest treasure, then we too can look back at trials and hardships with joy. We may not see the fruit that Paul saw. We may not see directly what God is doing. Maybe we will see good things that happen through suffering, through our suffering. Maybe we won't. (coughs) Maybe people will look at us and have looked at us in the past as people who have faith in Jesus. They have seen how we have been, how we have handled our trials. They have seen how we have gone through them with a certain attitude. Maybe even others have seen us respond to trials in the past and become emboldened to share the good news, to be drawn more to Christ. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe you've seen those effects on your own life. Maybe you haven't. But when Christ is your highest treasure, you may look back at your trials, myself too, and know that ultimately, somewhere along the line, they are used for God's good purposes. We may see the fruit at the time. We may see the evidence of that. We may not. You see, the difference is monumental. When Christ is our highest treasure, it changes the way we look at the past and the way that we reflect on that. If he's not our highest treasure, then we will get sucked into that bitterness, that anger, that resentment. The difference is is monumental. All things, according to Paul, work out for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Eventually. And knowing that, Paul has hope. In that I rejoice. So when Christ, number one, is your highest treasure, is your greatest treasure, number one, (coughs) we can have joy in our past trials. And if you're wondering, how does that work? How does that actually work? What do I do to get that? We're going to consider that right at the end. So hold that thought. When Christ is your highest treasure, number one, there is joy in past trials. When Christ is our highest treasure, number two, we can have joy in current hardships, in present (coughs) hardships. Look down at verse 15. Um, Paul writes this. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. There he is, chained up, most likely. He's in jail. 
And according to Paul in this letter, there are a group of people out there who are trying to make his suffering even worse. As if it wasn't bad enough as it is, there's a group of Christian people that are trying to make his suffering worse. It says there in 17, trying to afflict me in my imprisonment. It's like there's a group of Christians out there, says Paul, who are trying to rub salt into my wounds, trying to add insult to injury. They're trying to deepen his pain and his anguish. We don't get any details from the text. Paul doesn't say exactly what they were doing and exactly who they are. But he says this, they are motivated not by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are motivated by their envy and their rivalry towards Paul. They're envious about him. They consider him competition, a rival, rather than a fellow brother, a fellow gospel worker. We don't know, we, we, we can't tell. But perhaps Paul's arrival in, in their city provoked their envy. Maybe they felt threatened by him, this great apostle, this great teacher, this great church planter. Maybe they felt threatened by him being there. And it stoked up some kind of competitive zeal. They had a desire somehow to protect or increase their own personal influence within the city, within the Christian community. And so we see these people preaching Christ, not because of Christ, but with a heart of envy and rivalry, seeking to stick it to Paul. He says, on the other hand, there are many other people who are emboldened by my being here, by my chains, by my, my, my being in prison. And they were stimulated to preach Christ out of love and, and thank God for them, says Paul. But there is another group here who just sought to cause me more pain. By the way, these, these are real Christians that Paul is talking about. They are true believers, brothers in the faith. Uh, Paul doesn't condemn their message. He doesn't say they're preaching the wrong gospel, or, so don't listen to them. He doesn't say that. They are preaching Christ. But he's saying it's not their message that's a problem, it's their motivation, it's their hearts. But the interesting thing is this, and this is how Paul has joy even in his present hardships. They think they're increasing his pain by proclaiming Christ for their own personal gain. They think they are rubbing salt into his wounds, but actually, when they're preaching Christ, they're doing the exact opposite. Christ is being proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, he says in verse 18. You see, if Paul's highest treasure, if the thing that he values above all other things, if, that, if he treasures his own reputation, I'm an apostle, if that's his highest treasure and he hears people preaching against him, then he's going to be filled with a sense of indignation, of irritation. Who do they think they are, those, those preachers out there? Do they not know who I am? I'm the Apostle Paul. If Paul's highest treasure is his reputation, his power, then of course he's going to be annoyed. Of course he's going to respond with bitterness. Of course he's going to fire back insults. But the thing that is clear from this text is that Paul's influence, Paul's reputation, Paul's own personality is not his highest treasure. It is not the thing that he finds his most deep and significant influence, uh, uh, identity in. It is Jesus Christ. And now we can start to see why, 
even so, he can have joy in present hardships. You know, when we read the, the letter, the entire letter of the book of Philippians, we can, we can minimize what Paul is going through because he hardly references his own suffering. We forget what has happened to him. <coughs> we can think to ourselves, his hurt is not real. He's somehow blissfully unaware of what's going on and he's able to write this sort of spiritual stuff. That's not the real world, we think to ourselves. But just because Paul doesn't mention his own suffering or doesn't seem consumed with bitterness doesn't mean to say that he is not truly hurting and hurt by what these gospel preachers are doing. But what it points to very clearly is that Paul has a greater treasure. There is something else that he considers his highest value, and that is Jesus. And that is how we can have joy in present hardships. If you look at your own life, and uh, maybe, maybe joy isn't one of those things that, that uh, is flowing out of you, uh, maybe you feel joyless, then the chances are, if joy is not something that... that uh, is, is um, flowing out of your pores. The chances are it's because you treasure something greater than Christ. You value something more highly than Jesus if you are totally joyless. See, even in Christian circles, in, in churches, we may value our credibility more than we value Jesus. We may value our influence more than we value Jesus, being invited to speak at the right conferences and, and the right churches and all that. We might value that more than we value Jesus himself. We might value in the, in the church circles power and authority that we have. The people come to us. We, we are seen to be a source of wisdom. We might value that more than we value Jesus. But you see, if those things are attacked or criticised or, or whatever, our credibility, our influence, our power, our authority, if those things are challenged in any way, then we will not have joy. Joy will not be our response. Instead, our response will be self-pity. How dare they say those things about me? How dare they erode my influence? We become preoccupied with how we've been hurt, what people have said about us. We become obsessed replaying these things all the time, even in Christian circles. Instead, we think of revenge. We think, I know how I'll get them back. I know how I'll secure my own position. And so we overwork to try and prove a point. We underwork because there's no point. We can never match it. Either way, joy leaves the building. But you see, when Christ is our highest treasure, when he is honoured and proclaimed, no matter what people say about you, no matter what attacks you've had, if Christ is proclaimed, then you will discover joy in your present circumstances. I wonder how much envy and rivalry in today's church, among churches and within churches, how much of that will just disappear completely if we treasure Christ more than we treasure our own sense of identity, our own wisdom, that kind of thing? How much stronger might we be as a church, as the church, in, in Belfast and in our country, 
if we value Christ above these other things? How much more effective in our evangelism might we be? So forth. So we've seen that Paul, from his letter so far, shows us that he has joy when he looks at past events. Because all that's happened to me has served to advance the gospel. We have seen joy in current events. And he also shows us in the next chunk how we can have joy in future uncertainty. Part three. Don't forget, Paul is there in prison. He's waiting uh, for, to come up to trial before Caesar. He doesn't know whether he's going to be released to continue living life or he's going to be put to death. We don't know. He doesn't know. And so as his letter develops, his mind turns to his future. And, 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 and as maybe you picked up, as, as, as Jacob read through, it's quite an amazing conclusion to his thoughts about the future, even though it's completely uncertain. Life and death. And he says, I don't know what's happening to me. I don't know if I'm going to live. I don't know if I'm going to die. In fact, I'm torn between the two. He says in verse 21, <coughs> for me to live is Christ, which is awesome. But to die is gain, which is even more awesome. He says in verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That's good. I, I can be productive. I can bless God. I can preach the gospel if I stay alive. But in 23, he said, I'm hard pressed between the two. My d- desire, my heart is to depart, is to die and be with Christ because that is far better. And so in this whole section, he sort of flips between life and death, life and death, the benefits and the the benefits of life, the benefits of, of death. Because Christ, for him, is his greatest treasure. He desires, ultimately, to go and be with Jesus. To be with him. And yet he knows that if he stays alive, he continues to be fruitful. He knows that if he stays alive, in verse 24, it is necessary for the church. Because when I'm alive, I can come to you, I can minister to you, I can bless you. For your progress and joy in the faith, it says in verse 25. That you may glory in Christ Jesus, it says in verse 26. All this will happen if I stay alive. But for me, death, personally, is better. Because I get to go and be with Jesus. You see, Paul is facing great uncertainty, yet he just has this amazing alien confidence that he will rejoice in the future. You see that in the second half of verse 18. I will rejoice. It's a future tense. I will rejoice. I'm rejoicing now, but in the future, it's going to get better and bigger and deeper. I will rejoice no matter what happens to me. He said, it's my eager expectation and my hope in verse 20 that I will not be ashamed. Christ will be honoured in my body, whether in life or whether in death. This is totally crazy. This is alien talk for us extraordinary response from somebody but Paul says I have such confidence that I will not be ashamed before God that I have joy in the future see it's not Caesar's verdict that Paul is concerned about whether Caesar lets Paul live or Paul die the verdict that Paul is concerned about is God's verdict and the outcome of that verdict he says is absolutely certain I know I will not be ashamed. Christ will be honoured, and in that I will rejoice, guaranteed. There is joy in future uncertainty. Paul has joy in the past when he looks back at his trials, 
joy in the present hardships when he considers what's going on. And he, has, he expects and looks forward to a greater joy in the future with utter confidence. And so as we bring the, the, the sermon now into a close, I'm going to ask the question, we've seen this level of joy, and it's stirring, and it's amazing, and it almost just seems like it's come from a different planet. Because if we're honest with ourselves, and I'm honest with myself, that's not the level of joy that I currently possess. I want it, but that's not me. Maybe you have a similar response. So I want to finish with this final question. How do we, here today, attain the kind of joy that Paul is demonstrating in his life in this passage? How do we get it? This is our second mine into joy. Remember, the the second anchor into into joy. And we've seen this, that when Christ is our highest treasure, then we will have joy. When Christ is the thing or the person or the one that we value above all else, then we'll have joy, past, present, and future. But don't forget, this is not a study of Paul's joy that we can read about and be filled with knowledge about and go home and yet feel depressed and crushed and terrible because that is nothing like what we experience. So how can we get this? Maybe, by the way, you don't identify with any of this stuff. Maybe you are not a believer in Jesus. Maybe you think to yourself, you can have joy in your life, but you don't need Christianity. Uh, you, you can feel good about yourself without having to enter into religion, or it doesn't have to be Christian religion. You can have other kinds of religion. That will get me joy as well. But whether you are a believer in Christ or not, one of the fundamental things about human beings is that we will always attempt to find joy and significance in something. We will always attempt to find joy and significance in something. Something we will look to to give us joy. Whether it is our intellectual prowess and how much study we've done, how many books we've read, we might look to that to give us joy. It might be our athletic ability. (coughs) It might be our career success. It might be our physical beauty and our physical fitness that we look to for joy and significance. It might be our children. I'm significant and joyful because of my kids. It might be our romantic relationships. I feel significant and filled with joy because of a relationship I'm in just now. But the point I'm making with all this is that we will, as human beings, have something that occupies the top space in our lives. Something that we look to, which is our highest treasure, is the source of uh, true joy. It is the driving force in our life. We cannot get away from that fact. The question is, is that thing in your life able to bear the weight that you place upon it? Can it provide the source of joy, deep and everlasting, that your heart craves? Does it give you significance and satisfaction that goes on and on and on, deeper and deeper and deeper? You see, the problem with some of those things I just mentioned there is that they won't last. Everybody knows that. They won't be capable of standing under the weight that most people assign to them. Your athletic ability might be great just now, but it will weaken as you get older. 
Your career might be working out for you just now, but how are you to know that things are going to continue like this? Maybe it'll disappoint you. Your beauty will fade as you age. Your relationships with your children may not work out the way you wanted. Your kids may not succeed in the exams that you want them to succeed in. They may turn and rebel against you. Then what? That romantic relationship in your life may not give you the source of joy and pleasure that it did at the start. Then what? See, these are all good things in and of themselves, but I put it to you, they are incapable of providing that deep, lifelong joy that we see Paul has in these verses. Because when these things that you treasure and I may treasure, when they fail, and they will, or when they fail to live up to our expectations, then they will crush you. They will disappoint you. You'll come away hurt and disappointed because you'll realize that they were not the answer. They are not the source of joy that you hoped they would be. In the gospel... Jesus Christ is the only one who will not fail you. He is the only one who will never disappoint you. He is the only one who will never crush you when you fail. He's the one whose love will never weaken. His his passion for you will never fade. He will never turn his back on you and reject you. In the Gospel, Jesus Christ gave his life for you and for me. He gave his life by becoming a servant. We saw this a few weeks ago. He laid aside his kingdomly splendor so that he could save you. He humbled himself, it tells us, to death, even death on a cross. But God raised him up. God honored him. God gave him the name above every name. You see, Jesus is the servant and the king. He is the humbled and the exalted. He is the lion and he's the lamb. And when you see what Jesus did for you in the gospel, when you realize what he did to forgive your sins, to remove your guilt, when he gave his life on the cross, when he went through that suffering in your place to make you a child of God, when you look at him, when you realize what he's done for you, then you will see Jesus, as the Bible says, as the pearl of great price. He is the most, he will become for you the most costly treasure. He will be in your vision the most beautiful thing that ever was. He will become resplendent in your eyes. He will become the most valuable thing in your life. If Jesus is this to you as he was to the Apostle Paul, then you will have joy when you look back at your past trials differently, when you consider your present hardships, and you will have joy when you are uncertain about the outcome of the future. Only because of Jesus and when you look at what he's done for you. But let me just finish with this practical note. No one becomes like Paul overnight. That's good news for you and for me. See, for Paul... Jesus was glorious. For Paul, Jesus was beautiful. He was humility personified. And so Paul gave himself in obedience to Jesus. He gave himself to the cause of Christ. And so when we see Jesus like that, as he's given to us in the gospel, we respond in faith by giving ourselves to him. And yet we don't become like Paul overnight. 
It is not a one-off. Instead, it is a thousand steps of obedience towards Christ. It is daily seeing Jesus as he is in the gospel. It is daily giving ourselves to live for him, to serve him. Paul goes on to say in this letter, I learned obedience. This didn't just happen to me because some angel visited me or the Holy Spirit gave me this massive download and suddenly I was like, no, he learned this through a thousand different steps in the same direction. He learned this through the uncertainty of life. He learned this with what happened to me. That's how I learned to see Christ and to receive joy. And so the same thing applies to us, whether it's through trials, through hardships, through uncertainties. If we choose Christ, if we see him as our highest treasure because of what he's done for us, then we will receive joy. Joy in the past when we look back. Joy in the present when we are under attack. And joy in the future. It will replace your self-pity. It will continue to grow. It might just be a seed at the start, but it will continue to grow and bear fruit. Joy, joy, joy. And Paul says, with the help of the Holy Spirit, in verse 19, and with one another's prayers, this will turn out for my deliverance, for my release. He's not talking about his release from prison. He's talking about his deliverance from suffering. And so like Paul, if Christ is seen like this as our highest treasure, we will receive joy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for what Jesus has done for us by giving himself for us on the cross and being raised on the third day. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you will help us to see Jesus as he is offered to us in the scriptures. Help us to see him. Help us to taste him. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you will become for us our highest joy, our greatest treasure, and that as a community of people around the gospel, with the Holy Spirit, we would see the fruit of joy growing more and more in one another's lives. Lord, we look to you for help, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.